0: and turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. We've been studying the middle section of the book of Genesis. Last year, we did ber- chapters 1 through 11 this year. We've picked up in chapter 12. We're working our way till verse, chapter 36. In these chapters, we have the divinely inspired record of the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are the patriarchs of Israel. This portion of Scripture is called historical narrative. You know why? Because it's a narrative of history. It tells the story of real events that happened in history. But while it is a historical record, It is not dry and dusty detail. It is not an irrelevant catalog of insignificant events from 4,000 years ago. This is our spiritual heritage. Our family tree, if you will. Our spiritual forefathers tracing all the way back to the beginning. And by looking at their lives, we learn a little something about where we came from. That's important to know, isn't it? That matters. We learn from their lives why history has been the way it is. We learn how we have come to this point in our world. We learn a little something about how the world works. We learn crucial lessons about faith and about how to live in this world. And most of all, we see the character and work of Almighty God on display in a way that encourages us and challenges us and compels us to trust in Him. You see, God doesn't just tell us to trust in Him. He shows us why we can by His grace. He could just command us. And He does command us. But He backs up His command with compelling accounts that show not only must we trust in Him, but He is trustworthy. And these historical records that are passed on to us in the form of stories or narratives show us the truth about God. And all this talk of faith and trust in Him is not just vague theological jargon. It is true to life. And it has to do with real people in the midst of real circumstances. And so as we look at the life of Abram, what we need to see, first and foremost, above all else, is who God is and what He has done and what He is doing. The goal in studying the life of Abram or any other biblical character is not moralizing. Right? That's not... Look at Abram, be like Abram. What's the lesson we learn from, you know, Abram going down to Egypt? Well, don't lie about your wife. That's not the story that we're being told. We saw that in chapter 12. And the story is not about allegorizing either. So you don't want moralizing, and you also don't want allegorizing. Right? That's the idea of uh, look at Abram, look at these events, those events are, a, are an allegory or a symbol of something you are facing, these events are your events, and so the war that Abram fights is, is the circumstances that you're having to work through in your life, they're the same thing, right, that's David and Goliath theology, right, the bad kind, well, who are the giants in your life, and, you know, all of that, that's not our goal, in studying historical narrative the goal of it all is to teach us who god is to teach us what god thinks and what he is doing and then from that we learn how true faith and true believers are to respond to the challenging events and circumstances of their own lives in light of what we have learned and what we believe about god you see how that works And so in chapter 12, when we see Abram leave his homeland and his family to obey the Lord's command, we see a great display of faith. And there is a part of us that wants to say, follow Abram's example, do what Abram did. But his faith wasn't so strong because it was Abram acting. What made his faith so spectacular was that it was placed in Yahweh, the Almighty God. Abram did not know what to expect in the future when he left Ur of the Chaldeans, but ultimately it didn't matter, because if Yahweh said it, that settles it. We need no other assurance, because the God who called him is supremely trustworthy. Likewise, in chapter 13, when we see Abram selflessly defer the choice of land to his nephew Lot, knowing that that could result in Abram leaving the area and Lot staying, we see another great display of faith. Abram, contrary to his lapse of faith at the end of chapter 12, now is able to freely give up the land that God had promised, if necessary, because he knew that God would remain true to that promise somehow. Abram wasn't attached to his earthly goods. Again, he didn't need to know the future. All he needed to know that was that God, is that God was in it, and that was enough. And now as we turn our attention to chapter 14, we see another demonstration of steadfast and courageous faith, not resting on earthly circumstances or achievements, but resting only on the character of Almighty God alone. This is an account that involves a lot of funny names and weird circumstances, but it is meant to point us to the God who is faithful and the response that his faithful people can have as they navigate this world. So let's look at Genesis chapter 14. You say, is he really going to read the whole chapter? God put it here, didn't he? So let's read it. Does he know how to pronounce all those names? I do my best. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, kedr king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinad, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboyim and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. The king of Bela apparently had a pronunciation that was too hard even for them. That's why it's not listed, I suppose. Notice that in parentheses here, there are several names. Okay, so this is Moses writing an account of something that happened during the days of Abram. A lot has changed since then. Okay, so names changed, you know, geography changes a little bit. So you're going to see some of that read back in here. Verse 3, and all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea. Twelve years they had served Keterleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Asheroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh Hiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Peron on the border of the wilderness." You say, why are you reading all those? Because if you look at your map, you can trace what's going on if you open up to the maps in the back of your Bible. Verse 7, Then they turned back and came to En that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Verse 8, Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with keter king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elisar, Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen, or tar pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. Verse 12, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram to Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. That's up in the north. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman lot with all his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Keterlamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. A twofold blessing, first on Abram, but then supremely on God Most High. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich." I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Once again, an earthly conflict seems to threaten the promise of God. Abram was not looking for attention, nor was he seeking to insert himself into the midst of international affairs. But the conflict found him. The war described in this chapter was not Abram's war, but he could not stand idly by while the lives of those close to him, his own relatives, were threatened. So he had to take action. And that leaves us once again with a burning question. Is Abram and his band of 318 soldiers going to survive this conflict? Or, more pressing is God's promise to Abram going to hold true? Or is this going to be it? And once again, we see Abram's faith in action, demonstrating how true faith in the one true God navigates the conflicts of life. You know, sometimes we forget that we live in a world filled with conflict, don't we? He said, no, I don't forget it, I watch the news. Okay. So it's not so vague to us now, but sometimes we forget that the conflict is the normal experience of humanity in a fallen world, don't we? And so when we suffer, when we face conflict or hardships, we count it strange. We get offended. We huddle back in our corner and think, this isn't right. How dare this world treat me this way? How are we supposed to respond in those circumstances? How are we supposed to find our strength and our stability and our hope? Well, this chapter helps us figure that out by reminding us of the world's instability, no matter how powerful the armies get. In fact, it seems like the more powerful they get, the more unstable it gets. But it also highlights the faith that Abram Abram demonstrates in a world at war. It was his steadfast faith in the Lord God alone that enabled Abram to stand up and do what he needed to do in this passage. And so in this, we learn that because God is sovereign and faithful, as we have already seen, because God is sovereign and faithful, his people can have courage in the midst of conflict and remain faithful in the midst of temptation. All of this we see in the passage before us today. And so I want us to notice, first of all, Abram's courage in the midst of conflict. His courage in the midst of conflict. We see this in verses 1 through 16. In these verses, we see a portrait of the reality of life in a fallen and sinful world. But we also see where the godly heart is and where the godly mind and where the godly focus really are. The passage opens in verses 1 through 12 with a summary of an international crisis. It is an international crisis that reaches into the local area where Abram and Lot are at that time. Verses 1 through 4 give us the background and setup for the conflict. It involves two significant coalitions of armies engaging in war with each other. On the one hand, you have a major international coalition made up of keter Lammer of Elam, which is uh, in the area of modern-day uh, Iran. That would have been around the Persian Empire. And then you have Amraphel of Shinar. You know that word, maybe? That's where Babylon was and is, and so you have modern-day Iraq. And you have two other kings, Ariok and Tidal, who are likely from the areas that make up modern-day Turkey and Syria. So in other words, this is a significant coalition. These are, at that time, major powers, and they completely surround the area. These four kings. And then we read, so we'll call that the international coalition, okay? Because you need to follow this. Because then we also meet the local coalition. In verse 2, Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha of Gomorrah, Shinab of Adma, Shemabur of Zebulim, and an unnamed king in Bela, or Zoar. This is five kings, but it's a smaller group, and it's a more localized coalition around the area of the Dead Sea. Then verse 3 tells us that the international coalition went to war with the local coalition, and verse 4 tells us why. The local coalition had served Kedrolaomer for 12 years paying tribute to him as the, the overlord of that area. But in the 13th year, the local coalition decides enough is enough. We're not going to pay anymore. And then in the 14th year, we find the conflict. Verses 5 through 11 describe the conflict. A year later, word reaches Keterlamer. Also, the prophets hadn't come in. Um, why did it take a year for all of this to pan out? Well, First of all, there was no internet. Second of all, there was no news media. And there was no real quick travel back then. So it would have taken a while for notification to arrive that they aren't paying anymore. And then it would have taken a while for him to get the coalition together before taking action. So this international coalition is forming. Keter Lammer takes action. And then, and then, what we read described in these verses is not an attack of precision. We talk about this in the military now. We 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 got this Geneva Convention and all these laws of armed conflict and the rules of war that uh, you don't use an atomic bomb when a guided missile will do, right? You don't use a guided missile when a small band of soldiers with with machine guns will do, right? You. You want to use the least amount of force possible to get the job done, and you want to eliminate any civilian casualties and all of this. That's not what happened here. These towns, these cities refuse tribute. Keter Lammer gets this international coalition to come, and if you trace what's going on here, it is a wholesale slaughter of the region of the guilty parties. Trace these cities and people groups out on a map, and you will see that this coalition approaches from the north of Canaan and travels, on the, travels south on the eastern side of the Jordan River and wipes out cities and people groups along the way, all the way down almost to Egypt. And then they turn around and they start going up on the eastern side, or, sorry, the western side of the Jordan River, back up to the north. They are wiping out the whole region. This is a full scale war. And the international coalition is dominating. And some of the peoples that they wiped out were strong peoples. Some say even giants that still roamed the earth at that point. Don't think, you know, 100 feet tall, think nine feet tall. I mean, big soldiers, warriors that most people would be afraid of. And here comes the international coalition, wipes them out. This is a superior army a powerful army marching through the land, south and then back north again. And yes, on their way back north, they would have marched right through the area where Abram and his people were before he chased them down. This was a statement defeat for the international coalition. The local coalition is utterly routed. And verse 11 mentions the international coalition coalition completely plundered Sodom and Gomorrah, took all their stuff away. And now I know you're sitting there saying, wow, that's a big war. But so what? And that would be a good question to ask, because I think that's where the text leaves us at this point, with a sense of, and now what? What of Lot? What of Abram? What of the land that God promised What of this international coalition of evil forces? I think we're supposed to feel that. And I think we're supposed to feel a sense of, well, that was a quick description, so what's the real story? And do you know why it's significant to think that? Because what is going on in this time, in this chapter, in this conflict, is world news headlines. This is front page stuff right here. But it is mere background information to what God is really up to. Did you notice that? We know almost nothing about any of these kings, nor much about the cities they ruled at that time. They are not the prominent features of the story. They are simply background characters giving color to the real story. And the real story is what God is doing in the world through his servant Abram to deal with the problem of sin and to reconcile the people to himself. That's a story that doesn't make headlines. But that's the real story of history. And so verses 1 through 11 are merely background information. Listen, World history and all the crises and all the conflicts that get the world riled up are not the ultimate story of the world. They are not the significant history. One preacher rightly noted that world events and leaders are only recorded as they fit the story of God's work in God's people. And that's not just true in Genesis 14. That is true whether we're talking about the international coalition here or Pharaoh in Egypt or the Medes and the Persians in the book of Daniel or Caesar Augustus in Luke or Joe Biden in Congress in Washington or Roy Cooper in Raleigh or your boss in his office. And the same is true of world events, whether they be wars or plagues or social conflicts, or the daily struggles that follow you around through life. As big as those things may seem to be to us, God is moved by none of it. In fact, He is in control of all of it. And He is working it all together for His sovereign plan and His good purpose. Again, it's been summarized. Though the entire region of Genesis 14 is devastated by war, God's attention is on Abram and his descendants as the main event. All else is background. What really matters is the work of God in Abram and all of his descendants. All of his descendants. All of them, including what Paul says in Galatians those who believe today. So the work of redemption that the Lord is accomplishing throughout history is the main event. Now, it's not that the rest of history is meaningless and useless, but the point is that all of that, both the good and the bad, are the tools in God's hand that He is using to carry out His eternal saving plan. That is the storyline of Scripture. Scripture. That is the storyline of history. That is the storyline of your life. So, we come to verse 12, and this is where verses 1 through 11 begin to take on their significance for Abram's life. We read, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, in his possessions, and went their way. This is where the crisis hits close to home for Abram, the Lord's servant. And that brings us to verses 13 through 16 where we see abram's daring action verse 13 says then one who had escaped came and told abram the hebrew who was living by the oaks of mamre the amorite brother of ashcol and aner these were allies of abram here here's abram living in his tent where he had set up shop before living in his tent making friends with others in the land living a little west of the Dead Sea in an area not too far from where Jerusalem is. And now to this point, Abram did not get involved in this international conflict, even though these armies likely marched right through near where he was staying. Abram wasn't in a city, though. He was off kind of alone because he had all these people with him. But Abram had not to this point gotten involved in the international conflict. You see... Not every earthly battle is for God's people to fight. What is first above all is for God's people to keep their eyes on Yahweh, on God, and to follow His commands according to His word with our hopes set on His promises. But we read that God sovereignly brought this conflict into Abram's life when this survivor, apparently from the city of Sodom, who apparently knew Lot, shows up. Either this guy had fled from Sodom and went to Abram, or he peeled away from the band of soldiers, the army that marched through the area, found his way to Abram and gave his report that Lot and his family had been taken captive by the international coalition. And so in verse 14, Abram can no longer stay neutral in the conflict. He has to take action because his family is involved. And though not every earthly battle is for God's people to fight, there is a time to stand up and do what is right. And regardless of Lot's foolishness that led him to live near Sodom, which we read about in chapter 13, and now to dwell in Sodom, which was even more of a foolish choice for him, in spite of all of that, Abram does not just sit idly by without attempting a rescue. But wait a minute. What about God's plan? Abram, if you go to war with this massive and powerful army on your own, and it's going to have to be on your own because there's no one left, you could die. You'll likely die. Then what of God's promise? Abram, don't you think it would be better to leave this one alone, to let Lot bear the weight of his own sin, And keep yourself safe to carry out God's promises. Shouldn't there be a certain level of self-preservation for one who has received God's future promises? Friends, God's promises are not that fragile. Abram was faced with really only one right option. And God's promise is not an obstacle to that. God's promise is a reassurance in the midst of it. So Abram faces this option in the context of God's sure promise that has already been given. Therefore, it was his faith in God's promise that gave him confidence to take the right action at the right time, and frankly, wisdom to do it in the right way, as we'll see. Faith in God is a courageous faith that is willing to do what is right, because it rests on God's character and God's faithful word. Abram takes the approach, essentially, with the assumption, either he's going to keep me from dying, or he's going to do something else that I can't foresee, but he will keep his promise, and I will do what is right. So in verses 14 through 16, Abram leads out 318 of his own servants, men who have been trained in his house, they are, they are trained warriors, and he chases this international coalition some 150 miles, first up to Dan, where he defeats them, and then he chases them past Damascus. And when he gets there, he doesn't just haphazardly descend upon this mighty army and try to overpower them by sheer force. Standing up by faith to do the right thing doesn't give us the license to act stupidly. <laughs> okay. He wasn't acting without wisdom here. I get the sense that this coalition would have been way too large for 318 men to overcome. After all, they took out the giants on the the other side of the river. But God was at work here, and Abram makes a wise, smart, and strategic battle plan, much like what we read about Gideon in Judges 7 and 8. He goes in by night, Splits his forces, comes at them from two different angles, um, surrounds them, defeats them by by stealth, ultimately chases them out of the area on past Damascus. And in it all, we're told Abram not only got back Lot and his family, but all of his stuff, and he freed up all of the other captives. Oh, this was a resounding defeat a major victory for the entire region that came at the hand of Abram, the sojourner who's now turned general, and his 318 guys. Now here's what I want us to notice in all of this. This account is not given for the purpose of giving us war tactics or telling us how great of an army general Abram was, though there might be some wisdom in those things. This account is not given for the purpose of exalting Abram to international recognition among other world leaders. That's not even what God is doing here. In fact, it's just the opposite. God is setting his man and his people apart from the rest of the nations, and he is setting his plan apart from the rest of world events. What God is up to here and in all human history, is not concurrent with world events. It is sovereign over them. And that is a truth we need to understand in our day of conflict and upheaval throughout the world. And this passage is yet another picture of God's providence at work in the course of human history. He demonstrates faithful mercy by delivering Lot from the consequences of his foolish choices. And he will do it again later. God demonstrates faithful protection to Abram, enabling him to live faithfully and godly to do the right thing in this present life with confidence knowing that God will preserve and uphold him. And so Abram demonstrates great courage in the midst of serious conflict. But this courage was not rooted in his own strength or the strength of his mighty men. It was rooted in the promise of God himself. That's a foundation that cannot be cracked. And in all of this, he models what a faithful life looks like in the midst of the harsh reality of a fallen world. To do nothing would have been wrong. He had to act on behalf of Lot. So he acted not with brash and crazy and haphazard aggressiveness, but he acted with a God-oriented conviction knowing it would be better to die doing right than to live doing what was wrong. But he acted on that conviction confidently, knowing that he would be safe in the hands of his faithful, promise-keeping God. There really is nothing in this world that can touch God's people. Do you understand that? You are invincible in this world. unless God determines otherwise. And if God determines otherwise, it's for His perfect plan, and it is a trustworthy plan. You don't have to be afraid of what everybody else is afraid of. You can live confidently and faithfully because you are living with your eyes and hearts set on a faithful, promise-keeping God. Faith in the sovereign God creates courage and conviction in the hearts of God's people to do right in this present world, not because it's easy, but because God is faithful and trustworthy. It's Abram's courage in the midst of conflict. And that brings us now to consider not just his courage in the conflict, but his faithfulness in the midst of temptation. Faithfulness in the midst of temptation. We see this in the peculiar scene that is recorded in verses 17 Through 24. After defeating the international coalition, Abram returns home toward the Oaks of Mamre near Jerusalem. And there he is met by two kings the king of Sodom in verse 17 and the king of Salem in verse 18, Melchizedek. The king of Salem is Melchizedek, and he is a mysterious figure in Scripture. This isn't the only place we read about him. We read about him in the Psalms, we read about him in the New Testament. Verse 18 says that he was the king of Salem, that is, Jerusalem, before it became Jerusalem, before Israel occupied the land. But not only was he a king, we also read that he was priest of God Most High. Now that's interesting, isn't it? He was priest of God Most High in the dark and pagan land of Canaan, before God had ever established fully his nation of Israel and given his people the law. So apparently there is still some knowledge of the Almighty God on the earth. And Melchizedek is one who held on to that knowledge even in the midst of the spiritual and moral ruin of Canaan. It just goes to show That God always has his remnant and he always preserves his people and his blessings, sometimes in the most unlikely places. Who would have thought that in the middle of the quote unquote dark ages, there would be this shaky, scared, legalistic, petrified little monk named Martin who would come across in his dark ages? theological study, the works of one named John Huss, who would then become convinced of the grace of God in salvation and justification by faith alone and spark a movement that has not yet ended to this day of a restoration to the sufficiency of Scripture and pull God's beloved people out of the influence of those dark ages. Who would have thought? God has his remnant. God raises up his people, sometimes from the most unlikely places. Who would have thought that Abram, the pagan idol worshiper, could do anything for God? And yet, God called him. Abram followed. And then he comes across Melchizedek. Who would have thought? A priest to the Most High God, right there. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine to Abram and to all who are with him. This is a royal banquet meant to honor them and to refresh them in their journey. In verses 19 and 20, we read this twofold blessing that Melchizedek pronounces over them. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And then blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This is a God-centered blessing. It is an expression of gratitude that is aimed not so much at Abram as it is to Abram's God. Because God has shown himself faithful. Melchizedek recognizes it. Abram acknowledges it. He he gave him a tenth of everything from the spoils of war. Abram and Melchizedek, in response to this war, are joined together in a moment of worship because they know where this victory came from. Now, as if to interrupt this sacred scene, in comes the king of Sodom. In verse 21, the king of Sodom has no word of blessing or thanks to Abram. He just approaches him with a spirit of superiority, and in a display of false generosity, he demands, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Make no mistake. That was not magnanimous on the part of the king of Sodom. That was not an expression of generosity. Oh, you can take all the stuff. Just give me the people. What he says here is a power play in that culture. It is a declaration of authority over Abram. You got the spoils of war, but they're my spoils. So you get what I give. Perhaps the king of Sodom is afraid that Abram, upon receiving this victory and getting these spoils, is now going to start encroaching on his kingly domain. This demand is from a king who wants to make sure that Abram stays in his place. But it is also a demand that is meant to appeal to Abram's flesh. You get the stuff. All I ask for you is that you give me the honor. You get the stuff. This is an offer of earthly wealth by the hand of a worldly benefactor. Contrary to the king of Salem, this king of Sodom has no heavenly awareness. He is all about the here and the now of this passing world, something that is characteristic of the city of Sodom, which is why the Lord destroys it in a few chapters. But Abram sees right through it. And his response to the king of Sodom in verses 24 or 22 through 24, is a striking contrast to his response to Melchizedek, the king of Salem. His response to the King of Sodom, he says, "I have lifted my hand to the Lord." Yahweh." That's a, a name that Melchizedek may not have known because he didn't use it in his blessing, but Abram pronounces the same blessing and inserts the name Yahweh. God most high possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours. Why? So that you have no basis to say, I made him who he is. I will take nothing except what the men need. Let them have their share, and you, sir, go on your way. In his response to these two kings, we see where Abram's heart really is and what his faith is really all about. He is not moved by the spoils of war, nor by the glory of leading a victorious military campaign. He's not moved by the ribbons on his chest or the ranks on his shoulder. He is not devoted to earthly causes or possessions. He is already rich, and he has already held that very loosely. He doesn't need more. He has no intention of being beholden to anyone or anything in this world. Why? Because he belongs to Yahweh. He is focused on Yahweh. He is devoted to Yahweh and His promises and His cause and and the cause that He has given to Him. And that faith drives everything else He does. You see that? There is no other driving force in the life of God's people, than Yahweh and His purpose for you. Whether that be poverty or wealth, or sickness or health, victory or defeat in this world. This faith drives everything. And that brings us to a crucial consideration that we must have for ourselves this morning. Two different kings with two different attitudes and Abram standing, as it were, right between them. Which one will he choose? Sodom or Salem? That's a good picture of the dilemma that confronts all of us every moment, every day. It is a recurring point of decision throughout the Christian life where is your allegiance? To whom do you belong today? One preacher said this, I thought it was helpful. The world, much like the king of Sodom, is looking for lackeys to do its bidding. The king of Sodom has no interest in Abram. He just wants a subject to do what he wants. This world does not love you. The evil one does not love you. You're just a pawn in their hands to them. But God gives his people bread and wine. God blesses his people. So which is better? You can answer that question with a little bit of common sense. You don't have to have a theological degree for that. Which one is better? Which world, which mindset directs your daily living? Now that one you may not be able to answer so quickly. You might need to do a little heart searching to figure out in what ways have I yielded, as it were, to the, to the materialistic allurements of Sodom. And in what ways have I neglected the blessings of Satan? Are you driven by the achievements and the values of this world or by the worship of the one true God? Are you devoted to earthly causes or to heavenly treasures? Sodom or Salem? Which one do you choose? And how will that choice direct the way you live today and tomorrow and the rest of this week? How will that influence the decisions you make? Love not the world, John says, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world...